This is Alley Audio Vision, a series of talks with Alaska architect Ralph Alley. Welcome, dear friends. Open our squeaking door and come in. We've been expecting you. In this 1964-based episode, the proclivity of the local design and development community to cut corners and skimp on structure turns out badly subsequent to the 9.2 magnitude earthquake. We get into the rebuilding effort and how Anchorage was changing. After we got the office together, Manley and Mayor, architects, engineers, and other people were mobilized in the community to go through the rubble outside on the streets in Anchorage. In those teams, being in those teams, it was more of an education than you'd ever get out of a college textbook or a classroom or lecture hall. It was an amazing experience. One of the first things that came out uh, was the concrete block cob jobs that I think we've addressed that before in our conversations, and I'm not sure if we shouldn't explain it a little bit uh, here, but Anchorage had this overall texture, and I I always thought it was kind of like the anchor in Anchorage. There were some buildings that people were very proud of, and but they were just instances. Filling in between were one-story and two-story concrete block buildings, usually with aluminum storefronts on them. Uh, Conair was one guy who was always in Manny Mayer's office selling uh, Conair products, and a lot of that was used, but there were other uh, manufacturers who were around to uh, help architects design their storefronts or office buildings, which all looked alike, really, when they were done, except the panels would change from yellow to orange or something like that uh, to brighten up the place. But the overall feeling were these this texture of concrete block uh, through Anchorage. And they were the buildings that tumbled. And that was so surprising. I always, I've always i told you about this little guy in my head that talks to me and still does, in fact. But first thing he said, divine intervention. And I thought, yeah, right, that's what it is. And it really gave Anchorage the opportunity to start anew and straighten up and build right. I guess that's uh, kind of what we started doing was just analyzing. Well, I remember something, uh, maybe you're about to get to it, uh, where uh, they would um, kind of pull the rebar up into the next uh, set of cells in order to um, sort of deceive the inspection process. Oh, that was the divine intervention, yes. (laughs) The practice in Anchorage for years Uh, when they were building these concrete block buildings. Uh, Of course, they had the excuse that I knew people who built them, uh, by the way, and architects who designed them, and the architects who kind of drew them up over a weekend uh, for survival. But uh, they were fast buildings and uh, and turned a fast buck for everybody, and people who needed them loved it because they could get in quick. And you could build those buildings with your eyes closed, but... Here is where I shouldn't have been closed. The codes, and it's this is kind of technical and it's really difficult. Not really difficult, but most people get bored when you talk about it. But you do know that steel can take both 
stresses, uh, tension and compression, which means pulling it apart or pushing it in, it will withstand that. And wood can too, to a certain point. But concrete in any form cannot. It's good with compression and that is all. And it needs steel, which has the ability to bend and to retrieve itself. Ties it all together. Back to normal. It needs that involved with the concrete to make it a really viable building material. And what would happen, as the codes do imply, that rebar, usually five, what they call number fives, but five-eighths inch round, vertical steel is required at a certain increment in in concrete block. Uh, It can differ. And every four feet, they call lifts, height of concrete block laid, well, they would have to call for an inspection. And the inspectors would come and they would see that the concrete uh, with grout was poured around the rebar and the 18 inches above the lift was sticking out for the continuation uh, of um, tensile strength. And the next lift of concrete block was there. And that the uh, rebar was placed as specified in the drawings. And that would happen. So far, so good. Yeah, good. (laughs) Well, in checking the rubble, there was no rebar in the concrete block. It was nothing but five-eighths inch holes in both single and two-story buildings. So they'd been, um, while the concrete was still wet and after the inspector left, they would grab all of the rebars and pull them up four feet. So when they came to see it on the next inspection, it would be the same uh, rebars uh, sticking up as uh, they saw the first time. Yes. But they all kind of look alike, so you can't identify them. <laughs> that <clears throat> The 18-inch overlap became a godsend in a way for the contractor because it gave him a good handle to get hold of to do that. It's like one set of rebars carefully used could last the contractor a lifetime. Yes, that's true. But anyway, that was the practice in Anchorage. And it was a discovery that was made in these teams that were plowing through all this rubble all over the place. And of course, the all the other materials that were juxtaposed to it as glass and things, it weren't supported either. So it, they, it went as well. I don't know what insurance companies ever did about that. I got busy and kind of lost track, but that would be a quite interesting uh, little addition to this story that would be fun to know. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the things that people do to save money. Like I was living in this little place uh, near downtown that was built in 1951. And one day we had kind of a, um, a sewer backup problem. I was living in a building that had a um, lower floor apartment in a, in a half down basement. And that was my apartment and an apartment above. And next door there was a house at ground level. And it turned out that the contractor in 1951 had enjoined the sewer lines in the backyard and there was only one pipe going out to the main. And so the people in the house that was on the mid-level of the three units like blocked up the line and then everything like kind of came back into my apartment. (laughs) And they could not figure out like what the problem was at first. And so it got like really bad until they finally figured it out and fixed it. But... You know, the, the contractor, just to save one inspection and a, a little bit of pipe and a little bit of digging and, you know, well, I guess it was a substantial amount when you add all that up. Yeah, the corners people cut were kind of incredible, and this uh, it finally caught up to him in, there in 64. Well, it always seems minor when you start looking at bottom lines or 
uh, making profits and things. But when you start just analyzing what all this is, I, I mean, right after the quake, uh, one thing that happened that's just astounding, you, you always think you know everything that's in your environment, but uh, the tides would come in and out and they were just coming in further and further on the western shores. This was other places in Alaska and not necessarily Anchorage, right? Well, obviously affected Anchorage, but not far down on the end of the Turnagain Arm, for instance, there were wooden villages or a village to completely flooded. And there was a forest and they went. And then all of a sudden down in Homer, which we've talked about before, out on the um, spit that uh, water ran through the salty dog saloon at windowsill level. And uh, I can remember, uh, I think it was April 12th, which was following the earthquake and we were still putting the office together, but there were people that were mobilized to go down on the spit and lift Land's End End out there on jacks. It's a wooden building. And uh, that was a tremendous uh, saga for getting the building up there so the tides wouldn't destroy it. Yeah, so when you're um, driving out there uh, on the spit and those roads and um, the roads and the buildings used to be, what, four or five feet below um, the present day uh, alignment? You know, I can't even speak to that, I, but I imagine uh, that they did have to lift the spit <laughs> in order for people to get out there. And when you go out there, it's all rock. You notice that. I think I can find some photos of that operation, and if so, I'll put them on our um, episode webpage. Oh, that'd be good. And I'd really be interested in seeing it myself, but you know, I, I only heard about it because we were busy doing other things. It fascinated me at the time, as did other things. There was the, um, oh, an extension to that, uh, Clark, is the fact that it was discovered that the western edge dropped in Alaska and the eastern edge lifted because people out there on eastern eastern shores had more land than they'd ever had before. <laughs> it was so terra firma, you can lose faith in it by something like that, and as well as a tremendous amount of fluidity it had during the quake. It was kind of a fascinating uh, thing, but you know, these little things about the concerns of turning a buck for doing a cob job when like 400 feet under you, there's layers of, or plates uh, that are sliding under the other, which just caused tremendous damage to uh, the surface. Here is, uh, I was just looking from my book, I was just thumbing through, but it is I'm, I'm just reading this, and I hope I can read okay. Maybe you could read it. It's on page three. It's down in the second paragraph. It starts with, caught standing over a tectonic event. I always thought this was interesting, and people forget about things happening so far down. Caught standing over a tectonic event, maybe 400 miles under in Earth's upper mantle, part of the Pacific's plate. Pacific plate's crusty makeup descends under an independently moving North American plate. Their surface, surfaces scrape against each other, grinding out an enormity and change where explosive power amasses then pulsates upward. Riding aboard flat ground surreal waves induces wonder how any building built from any material could remain standing. Steel bends and never breaks when push or pull is applied. Wood can do that and withstand applied weight, but concrete's uh, long suit is just supporting weight. No push, no pull. 
Uh, I think that that is kind of monumental to the damage of, and encapsulizes the damage to um, Anchorage's destruction. Things get pretty interesting, right? Because like almost any building has some combination of uh, uh, those three things. Yes. And in conjunction to that is Anchorage being built, some of it, along the shorelines on that infinite depth of blue clay, which liquefies when it is shaken for too long. And of course, that quake lasted for, I think, five minutes. And we may have covered this before, but you had the initial impact of the quake. And, and this that paragraph just describes what we were standing on top of and the fluidity of the ground, the sine waves. I've talked about that before. But uh, the liquefying of the blue clay was the other failure that happened. And uh, that's why Anchorage's earthquake was so destructive, was a lot of the clay liquefied and uh, the ground failed underneath. You know, I'd never um, actually seen that wave action in the land before until one time last summer when there was a magnitude 6 uh, quake. I think it was still an aftershock of um, that uh, kind of big one in 2018 that happened three years ago by now. I was standing in the kitchen when it uh, came through and I uh, the back door was open and so I ran out into the backyard and I saw the wave come through the neighborhood. It's really fascinating. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you believe the ground, the earth is flat. <laughs> and it, I mean, in, in that respect that you can depend on that or go climb a mountain and you know it isn't. But in this regard, the earth is really nothing but water, it looks like when you see that. Yeah, <laughs> pretty strange experience. It definitely sticks with you. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, you knew that as soon as a quake happened, that people from all over the world paid attention to Anchorage. We were just in the city, which was really a great community in a lot of ways at that time, and will never be the same afterwards. Every salesman, engineer, and architect just came to the city as soon as they were allowed to get in. And it was a town full of strangers, and a lot of people didn't like it. Uh, there had been stratas of society set up, which people were, uh, or I wasn't part of that. Those who were parts of that strat social strata were very comfortable with their leadership and, and their influence upon the community, but they were all of a sudden diluted. There were people there more famous than themselves, uh, richer than themselves, maybe more expertise than themselves, who just came to town. Some moved there, some stayed. And then the salesmen with the moment frame buildings were into every architect's office trying to say, well, we can build back quick. We can get this up in 20 days and blah, 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 and we can rebuild here. Well, it just terrified me <laughs> because yeah, I you, hated you the concrete... You just got rid of those uh, uh, three-sided concrete boxes, and now you're going to have something even uglier to replace them. Uh, yes, corrugated metal steel over town. <laughs> I, I just thought, gosh, how, how could we ever survive? Well, besides those people, which was 
enough, all the environmentalists moved in to analyze and to tell us what to do. There were experts, geologists, everything telling us, don't do this, we gotta move the town, we've gotta go to the base of the Chugach, and uh, we can no longer abide the blue clay, and we've got to scrape all this down, and blah, 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 just went, I mean, the town was just changed, and changed forever, by the way. And then, Mr. Edward Stone architect, and he did a couple of buildings, I think, out at Alaska, what was Alaska Methodist University. I don't even know what they call that now. It's about to change to um, something else again, but for a long time, for the last 30 or so years, I think it was Alaska Pacific University. That prior to the quake was a nice little commu- nice little complex. <laughs> Actually, Manly Mayor did it right after the quake. Uh, here comes Edward Stone, and he's he's world renowned. I believe he did in India. He did the American. Ah, what was it? Made a big splash. It was a uh, building in India in the capital. It it had something to do with the United States. I think it was. Uh, I wish I could, oh gosh, I should have studied this out. I just couldn't remember. Do, do you know that building? Or I'll give you a minute to uh, collect your thoughts, and uh, we got to uh, go to break. Okay. You'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. Listen, do you want to know the secret? You promise not to tell Whoa, closer Let me whisper in your ear Say the words you long to hear I'm in love with you Listen Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Tuned into Alley Audio Vision with Ralph Alley and Clark Yarrington. Don't tell anyone. The conversation shifts to Edward Durrell Stone, superstar architect who in 64 designed the building now known as the Atwood Center at the campus of Alaska Methodist University. In our middle segment, we talk about other local landmarks and then ask, how do you feel about yellow? So you were talking about Edward Durrell Stone and that uh, building that he built at uh, APU or AMU at the time. I think he was uh, uh, 
he didn't exactly pull it off the shelf, but it's definitely similar to some other things that he was doing at the same time, right? This building is kind of like a double um, jewel box thing. And it's got these giant hanging planters that he is known for on some other projects. Well, he looked at that hill out there as being the Acropolis of education or something and wanted his buildings to go on ad infinitum with columns and hanging planters. But you could go to Stanford and see the medical building that he did there. It looks exactly the same, but it's beige rather than white. Yeah. You know, they um, did a, a, a little bit of rehab on that building, including um, redoing all the concrete flat work a couple of years ago. And it looks pretty nice now. But the um, I think the real tragedy of it is that for a long time, there hasn't been any plants in the hanging planters. Yeah, that would be sad. But th- that is something in Anchorage that I think people need to have down at their level so they can take care of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you almost have to have a team and... Uh, some kind of cherry picker or something to take care of those. I should talk to some of my landscape architect friends about that. That would be a good project, it seems like, you know. Get, it get would. something growing in those things. They're, they're so massive, you know. <laughs> I know. Wait, it, it, the the guy, it, that office was done, or the, those buildings were done through Manly and Mayer, and uh, Dick Mayo, who is a guy I crawled through his car and his place behind the Denali Theater, uh, he was the one involved with Stone with that. He, he did all the drawings for that, and he was excellent. He later went on with Don Coolidge as a partner, and they did those Tionic buildings down on C Street uh, in Westchester. Yep. Yeah. The um. Uh. And those those buildings are still there too. But the um. That building at AMU is still the major building on their campus. I mean, they haven't built anything grander than that uh, in the last it, uh, fifty years. It, well, Anchorage, I don't think has a grander building than that. I mean, it it was supposed to be grand. <laughs> That's the way Ed, Edward Stone is, and when he arrived to Anchorage. He felt that it should have, and he he held lectures on this, that Anchorage should adopt an aesthetic in its rebuilding, which I thought was interesting because I'm I'm for that. Uh, I like uh, some kind of a place where people are going as long as, uh, you know, it doesn't become dictatorial, but there should be something that comes together for some fine final ending. But maybe there's no final endings anymore. I'm more like that than I was when I was younger. But at least having a direction, a goal, a map to where you want to go, that is kind of a good thing. And he would try to make people think about that in Anchorage. And uh, he thought it should be a city of white uh, buildings and uh, and kind of addressing the snow. But that's kind of what people think of Anchorage when they just come up for a second and leave, that it's up in the north and blah, blah, blah. But Anchorage has a lot more color than just that when you live there. Didn't he say something, maybe this is just a terrible rumor, but um, that uh, the hill behind that building at AMU, he wanted to uh, he wanted them to knock it down so it would open up a view of the inlet or something like that? Yes. He he, wa- he wanted to have it knocked down, and he wanted it totally rimmed with his columns as an extension of those two buildings. Yeah, well, they didn't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, people didn't sit still for him anyway. They'd leave his lectures. Uh, they didn't like things he said. He was arrogant. Uh, oftentimes, architects used to act that way. 
And it's a good way not to act. You know, you don't move in with your pork pie hat and cape and start dictating what people should do. Actually, I think good architects listen <laughs> more than what go around pontificating. <laughs> no, you don't need to do that, do you? You don't need to listen to anybody. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend here, or we, Virginia and I, and... You can talk to her all day, and she'll ooh and ah and stuff, and she hasn't heard a word you said. <laughs> it's mm. just she, it's just listening to oneself listen. <laughs> That's just kind of, I, I mean, I've come to that conclusion. I don't know for sure. I, in fact, I'm beginning to think I don't know anything about what anybody's thinking at any time. Yeah, well, that's um, I think that's a sign of uh, maturity, isn't it? You um, the more the longer you go on, the more you realize that uh, there's a lot that you don't know. Oh yeah, or that's what should happen is. to people, but uh, <laughs> often doesn't. Well, anyway, Edward Stone uh, did get those two buildings, uh, but the community direction, even thinking about that, eroded, and building back fast. Uh, just became the zeal everywhere. What was the and, second building he did? I think I missed that. Oh, there's two of those buildings up there, it, it, isn't there? Oh, uh, it's the same. Uh, they're twin yeah. buildings. Right. They're joined so, by a roof. Yeah. So so actually, I since I was in the office and did the working drawings, or as I was there part of the time, uh, it, it was two buildings as far as the office was concerned. They're joined by a roof, and they're joined by sort of a subterranean level, like a daylighted uh, lower level, something, something like that. I'll uh, go out and look at it again. <laughs> yes. I, I used to go out there just to look at it over time uh, after the quake, just to see how it worked its way in its environment. That's something that Pritchard, Dean of Architecture, used to tell me. He says, you know, you, you put that out there, Ralph. You put those buildings out there, but you got to see how it works its way in the world. I didn't even know what he meant when he told me that stuff. <laughs> but boy, I sure see it now. You mean how a building um, evolves over time or um, how, it, yes. how it changes? and how the world acts toward it and how it affects the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the um, the one that comes to mind uh, when I think about stuff like that is the Fourth Avenue Theater. It was yes. just this uh, the grandest uh, thing you could possibly imagine, like an auditorium that would hold one third of the population of Anchorage when it opened in 1947. And now it's been mothballed for 25 years, and it's just sitting there falling apart, and it's boarded up, and it looks terrible. And there's a whole generation of people that have no idea what the inside of it is like. Well, my wife used to go to movies there when she's a little girl, and it has stars up in, the, in its ceiling. Yeah, it has the big <laughs> that just Yes, and she was just always amazed by that. She still thinks about that, that those experiences when she attended uh, films there. Yeah, it's really the only real uh, theater that uh, we ever had here. Well, there was the um, uh, Empress Theater, which was on the next block, which wasn't too bad in its day, but it was very small, you know. And the, I went to movies to there, too. Yeah. It used to have um, uh, an organ in the days of uh, silent movies. That was kind of a trip to think about people sitting in there watching silent <laughs> movies to organ accompaniment when there was, like, uh, pretty much nothing beyond uh, 6th or 9th Avenue or so. Yes. Well, she lived out on 9th in the country on the Park Strip. <laughs> 
as a little girl, my wife I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you sent me a picture of her house, and I went by and um, looked at that house yesterday, and it's still standing there. It's not as old as I would have thought it was, at least according to the tax records that said it was built in 1948. Oh, she loved that house. Walked to school. Kids don't walk to school anymore. But Anchorage was quite different, and downtown was far from there, (laughs) which seems... When you listen to her talk, you think, my gosh, you're crazy. Yeah, I got to Anchorage in um, uh, 72 at age 12, and there was still a lot of um, old houses that were in those blocks, like kind of between 6th and 9th. There's a the park strip runs between 9th and 10th for the length yes. of downtown, and so that kind of divides that. And there's a re- still a residential neighborhood south of 9th, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th, and through to uh, 15th. The part of downtown that had all the houses in it, there's um there's still some houses there today, but not really very many, you know? So there'll be like one house sitting in a giant uh, block where the rest of it's uh, converted over to surface parking, and it just looks weird, and you look at it and go, what is that doing there? But it was once part of a whole neighborhood. I can remember, this was a long time ago, but of taking Charles Blomfield's five children and flying kites out on that park strip, and it was wonderful. Yeah, until sometime in the 80s, they used to have a kite day every year, and somehow the wind always managed to blow on kite day. It did. It was wonderful. The kids had the kites, but their folks were going somewhere, so they... I lived in an apartment in Blomfield's basement. I think we've been through all of that. But uh, they came down holding these packages. I was packing to leave. I was moving to the L Street. (laughs) And they said, we've got these packages. And I said, well, what do you got? And so I opened them up. And I told them to go get the string and some rags and stuff. And I put together five kites. And we all went up to the park strip and flew kites. And it was gusty. It was, you know, like a Chinook after a Chinook or something. It was just a terrific time, and I'll never forget how wonderful I felt with the fresh air in my lungs. Hmm. Nice. Happy afternoon nice. for the poor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this rebuilding Anchorage just was such... It, it, it was more than a local thing. It had so many forces there pushing and pulling, and it just was almost devastating and there were great articles in the newspaper where geologists would explain why it had to move and and there were people terrified and of course Anchorage had this population that had lived there for years and years and years and years and in some ways they feel they had a certain rights to bestowed upon them for enduring living there in the winters and that other people didn't have who came late later. In fact, the first question that was always asked anyone who came is, how long have you lived here? <laughs> and I don't know if you ever got that when you first, but I sure did when I got And that was the first question. And uh, anyway, it's those people who have been in Anchorage for a long time who objected to moving away from the shores and their beloved Cook Inlet and the Blue Clay. Uh, who actually became quite a force against the geologists with their pull and push toward the base of the Chugach Mountains. I used to get that question, and now I have a better answer. 49 years. <laughs> oh, is that, is that where it is? Okay, good. But it, what happened, and it was astounding in all this turmoil, we talked about the Hill Building, who's the guy who owns the Fourth Avenue Theater, by the way, and he has a penthouse on top that was 
done by Hamilton in, at Manny and Mayer's. You can see it. If you go over on the west side, you can look up. There's a house on top. I always thought that penthouse was kind of uh, an ugly barnacle on that building, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't look like the original building at all. But when you look at it a little bit more, it's kind of cool on its own account. But it's a, it, it's a weird mashup, you know. It, well, they painted it yellow to match up with the yellow of the of the Fourth Avenue Theater, which was painted and buff. It was a buff color when I went there, which was much better. But the Hill Building, which also was. The FAA had a competition between architects and contractors and of teams. It was Harry Hill and uh, Bob Hamilton that won doing the Hill Building, which is FAA uh, building, which is now the City of Anchorage building. And that building turned, and we've talked about this, I believe, 45 degrees off its base during the quake. But it was still in one piece, huh? In one piece, I wish I could remember the whole thing that happened. And it was described to me, and it was actually Charles Blumfield that described how it did. He, he went there to see it. But they de- did some kind of damming underneath and floated the building on concrete somehow and turned the building. I wonder how that could even happen, you know? Did they leave the rebar out of that too? I don't know. I have no idea. But that always fascinated me, that they could do such a thing. But there was a lot of that going on. You know, there were building a couple of high-rises. Westward Hotel was one that had actually uh, vertical struts exposed and bent. I remember looking at them, but that was fixed. (laughs) And it, it oftentimes, and we've talked about this before, but when you know those histories of the buildings, you think, can I possibly go in there? But you do. Uh, You you can do a little bit of uh, forensic work at that building. Like um, I often take the stairs instead of the elevator. And so if you're up on the upper floor of that building, like, you know, go down there sometime and walk down from the top floor uh, to the ground floor in the stairway. And when you get near the bottom, you can definitely see that the... um, there's exposed uh, concrete walls in, in there, and uh, you you can see the joint and the wall change thickness and stuff, you know. So you <laughs> <laughs> you look at it, and uh, if you pay attention to details, and you go, huh, "This is, looks a little uh, like somebody did some uh, repair work after the fact." There was plenty of that done, Clark. And the the thing is, I guess I get it was that that the hill had this yellow thing going the hill building that they did was originally yellow it isn't now right when Kuntz Pfeffer did a um a remodel of that building a pretty thorough remodel and uh you know changed the outside appearance quite a bit they kept that yellow color on the doors oh they did yeah just a sort well, of a nod to the to the old building I always liked I always liked yellow but I tell you like um, I'm one of the few <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Clark, I, I've got to tell you, I, I think colors really are really good, and I like most colors. I just don't like them on everything. And, for instance, there there's stucco, of course. Uh, this is kind of crude, but I think stucco is the snot that sticks Southern California together, and everything is stucco everywhere you go, and no one thinks beyond stucco. But people paint these awful colors on stucco and I think some colors look great on stucco but a blue stucco just makes me sick to my stomach I can't stand it or uh, some greens and uh, 
it seems like materials have limitations and certain buildings in my mind certainly do but Hill did paint the Fourth Avenue Theater which kind of lost a certain stature I thought by being yellow his penthouse on top was yellow and then the FAA building was yellow it just seemed like it was his national color and he loved it and but I I'm fond of yellow and I'm fond of blue and I'm fond of green but I like it where I can tolerate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's uh, uh, stop here for a minute and uh, come back and do the final segment. No, baby, doesn't love you anymore. Golden days before they segment the third walter hickel defies the geologist's recommendations and begins construction of his captain cook hotel tower at fourth and i street a couple blocks in from a shoreline bluff ralph's big sister and her family relocate to anchorage ralph starts a development venture with dan and other partners and we fade this episode of alley audio vision out with the gory details of ralph's resignation from manly and mayor anyway the old timers were quite loud and actually powerful uh about keeping next to the shores and in the middle of all this hubble that was going on and all the rubble clearing everything there was this astounding thing that happened in anchorage and that was the um, uh, a developer named Walter Hickel, who later became governor. He rose above all of that blare, everything going on in Anchorage, and in the newspaper headlines that he was going to put the Captain Cook up, and uh, it was right where no geologist in their right mind would want it, and that its construction had started. 
And uh, that tower kind of cemented where Anchorage is today in my mind. It's something like 20 stories, isn't it? Uh, it was the first one. I'm not sure if it was 20, but it did have the crows, the one with the crow's nest on top, which was a wonderful place, used to be a wonderful place to dine. It's like there's a four-story building there and then another one that has seven or eight and then one that has 20 or maybe, you know, 17 or 18. Yeah, I think his, that one was the shorter of the t- of the higher ones, right. high rises. But it, it was that panel tower uh, it was gray gold, and actually I can tolerate that because it's tertiary, has kind of a little bit of earth tone in it. Just that stave uh, in the middle of Anchorage at that time just ended anybody's consternation and all the all the shouting, all of the newspaper things that was there. Of course, they hated him uh, for, for doing it, but uh, it's still there, right? Oh, yeah. You know, um, I think I told this story before. Hopefully we don't do too many repeats here, but he um, he was pretty bullish on the need and the ability to put a tall building like that on that site, but it's not mm-hmm. like he put his own office on the top floor. His own office was on the second floor, on the furthest point away from the bluff in the complex, you know. <laughs> so they said that he said he said publicly that he didn't agree with the engineers, but you could tell that he'd read their report. It it really did quiet Anchorage. And people kind of hopped to it, knowing that there, that that was kind of a statement that did the trick for letting Anchorage grow. And of course, um, I can't remember this. I think it was in the seventies that the borough came in and uh, they started. Uh, putting in an overall community planning, which I loved. And I was on the board and the planning commissioner at that time. And I, I just really liked being there and seeing what was going on. And they did some wonderful things, uh, I felt, to Anchorage. And uh, the Tony Knowles pathway, I think, is one of them. Yeah, that's uh, definitely um, a gem. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's and that's his uh, legacy, pretty much, that project. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that happened while he was the mayor, but um, that is just... Just uh, visionary, you know. It's fantastic. Yeah. So we've got this trail that goes all the way, that wraps all the way around the uh, waterfront. Yes. It, well, I, I like that kind of planning. And I, in some ways, though I think maybe it was different, but Edward Stone was trying to get to that for the city to come out with a, a direction of what it wanted to be. At that time, after the quake, that was refuted. But in time, Anchorage became to embrace that. And uh, I was really fortunate to be called upon to be on some of the planning and and the boards offered the direction to that and i i mean i wasn't the only one there were a lot of people on that but uh, i was there to put my two bits in one thing that happened was my friend dan who's always such an entrepreneur always thinking of things i almost hate to get into this but he he came up to me and he said that we had to get something up so we can, uh, like a little old corporation. He always he was from Texas. He went to Texas A&M in Houston and do something. And I said, well, what something are we to do? And he says, well, look around. We could develop land. We could uh, get a construction company together and build buildings. And we could do a lot of things. Uh, so I suggested that my first client, Verge, would be somebody that would be interested in uh, maybe look being heading the contracting part of it. Dan says, well, let's talk to him. Uh, if you remember, Verge was a six-sided house guy that I did way back in 1959. So anyway, we did get together, and uh, 
I, I never know really if uh, he truly stopped his other work, but uh, Verge joined into constructing things. And uh, at that time, I had quite a bit going, and I had houses uh, that I was developing. And so we started putting stuff like that together. And I had called my sister, older sister, who actually just died in uh, Utah, and wondered if she she was tired of Utah. And I knew this, and I just, just approached the subject and said, would you ever consider moving here? It's dynamic, and there's a lot going, and I have a lot going, and uh, would you bring your family up? And she talked to her husband, and a couple of days, she says, yes, we're coming, we'll come. So I had kind of taken on a family to support without really knowing that, but I was able to do that at the time. Just had all of this stuff going. They're they're kind of undoing everything in Utah, and me up here trying to figure out what I was doing. I was still working for Manly Mayor. I had all these questions going on in my mind. My gosh, should I quit Manly or shouldn't I? And I was working day and night and weekends. And believe me, Clark, and you've probably been here, there isn't enough moonlight in any of that to do all that was coming at you. And I thought, well, maybe I need employees and have never had employees, though I've been employed. I had this dilemma and wondered if I, this was time to quit Manly Mayor. I really needed to get away from that frou-frou house. Just because of uh, uh, what had happened there with the uh, earthquake? Uh, no, it, it was okay. It was just too small. And <clears throat> it was, um, I mean, I was beyond working in an office and in a bedroom. I needed to get, and I was studying too for exams. And it just was a tough place to be. I was at the Manny Mayor one day drafting away and and I was drafting private work in the bedroom there at the Fru-Fru house. And I went there to pick up a template that I really needed at the office. And when I got there, Verge's truck was there. I thought, well, what's he doing here? Uh, I just talked to both Dan and Frank, who were, the, were in the, with that house with me. And they, they're in their offices, and why would he be there? So I walked in the front door and looked to my left into the lavenderish step-down living room and uh, I caught him uh, flagrante delicto there with somebody on the Davenport and he started screaming at me to get out, get away, go, go, get, leave. And he wasn't even decent. <laughs> of course, I was shocked in a way because I discovered that I don't think that was his wife, it was my client. So anyway, I went back into the my bedroom and uh, I heard the front door slam dramatically out front and I just I just kind of sat there thinking wondering what the hell to Wishing do. Wishing you and could unsee something? Unsee something, undo something but one thing I do did know that nothing could ever be the same between us. He knew that I knew something about him that wasn't very good. He'd probably be afraid of what I might say to people about him I just was kind of assessing my life. And here he was to head the construction part of our corporation, which we'd started. And I had my sister and her husband and three children coming practically on the plane there. I just was sitting there just in an adult-pated mood, <laughs> not knowing where to turn. And so finally, I just quit thinking decided to um, uh, go back to work. I, you know, this 
client was raised in Detroit, and he used to, every time I act up or do things that he didn't particularly care for, he'd always say, "Look, I'm going to get some concrete boots on you." And I said, "I, I was, I was brought up differently than he was." And I said, "Well, what are concrete boots?" And he had to explain it to me, and I thought, "My gosh, I'm going to end up with concrete boots." Yeah, it was a little, a little before uh, so much uh, consciousness about the mafia and Jimmy Hoffa and stuff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but anyway, that was the I I was really in a muddle at the moment. Uh, so I checked up, checked the windows and doors, made sure they were all locked, and I just decided to go back to work. And in time, I was able to collect my thoughts. And um, maybe uh, you will want to read some of this. Do we have time? I haven't been keeping a time. I've just been talking. Got about uh, seven minutes. Okay, well, I went to the office, and, and uh, Bill was there, and he was in his office, and I'd stood there for many times, and the door was kind of open about 10 inches, and he, I kind of pushed it a little bit, and it opened, and he looked up and saw me, very warm, very nice, and I went and sat down in the chair, and I had been many, many times before uh, been in his guest chair opposite him at his desk, and he was very nice. He pulls his glasses off, and... Uh, I knew I was uninvited, and I started to say, talk words that had gone over my mind, through and through and through, and they came out quite loud, and I says, I'm giving notice. You need to replace me. I'm leaving. Hap- I can't, it, that's on that script 11 that I sent you to review. Do you want to read some of that? It's kind of interesting, and I think it's something that kind of changed things for architects in Anchorage. How long have you worked there? Eyes into squints and cold looking at me like I've never been, unable to read. Five and a half years. Did you lose count? Bill's face tightens with mouth broadening horizontal that emphasizes his flat, hard stare. Leaving for outside or another office up north here? No exact plans, but you and Francis need someone working for you who isn't distracted like I am these days. During your years here, you've shown little improvement or impressed us that you understand what this field entails. You appear to play at architecture, laugh a lot, joke. I do enjoy myself and others when I work, Bill. Why not? Until you develop a professional seriousness, Francis and I couldn't allow larger responsibilities until you did. We'll be unable to offer recommendations. Actually, you won't make it in architecture. I suggest you find another field for a living. That's crap, Bill. You're spewing crap. Architecture is my life's passion. What brings this on? You haven't passed board exams. What, say, three times? So far, designed twice, unless you're telling me that I flunked the third design try, the one that I just took. You do know, don't you, Bill? Ace six sections out of eight my first try, seventh the next. State boards down in civilization are given every six months. Here, when an exam section needs retaking means a two-year wait. But you, Mr. Alaska State Board, know that. Ralph Board notices contestants having difficulty, those who can't master the profession. You are one. It's design we're talking about, for God's sakes. Design is uniquely subjective, takes a talent itself to assess creativity. Up here in North's boondocks, oodles of creativity oozing from out any architect's office door is imperceptible. I always watch for, Bill, for someone's effort to bite me in the ass. Not once had a surprise, never in five and a half years. Examinations never lie, Ralph. Examinations may never lie, but a cadre of old guard practitioners like yourself who make up the and then grade exams can. Are you questioning the state board's integrity? 
examinees dependent upon state board's approval should not be subject to a closed shop bias. What I think Bill in Little Isolated Alaska established practitioners should not write, let alone grade exams for emerging competitive talent. Homegrown Alaska exams and grading are wrong and should stop. Three times Ralph is excessive. Others pass. You agree? Was that your answer that I flunked design when I just took? God, those are 12 long hour stretches. Bill, a state board should provide testing venues where examinations can produce solutions without enduring impediment. The last exam made it imperative to stand bent 90 degrees over low, uneven-edged library tables using T-squares, for God's sakes. Impossible was drawing reliable line work with that horrid back discomfort, a torturous experience. Stop making excuses for yourself. For once, Ralph, listen. This very day, my son exhibits more architectural skills than you do after these five-plus years. He's only in junior high. Damn it. Hire him. Cut me a check. I'm out of here. Up. Quick out Bill's office into the ammonia-stenched, overheated, slick-surface paneled jail with catalog cubbies. Along workstations next to room's west window, curtains are still in disarray, limiting views to west sky. Echoes playback Manly and Mayer drafting room dramas from out spaces and places about the room. Images take shape and voices ring from past colorful personalities. What began as a last linger lasts much longer than lingering should. After plowing through paper-piled disorder, I pack up. Flickering fluorescents light my way past counter links and tables to out front. Bill stands by the door, holding a check. Don't care how much, don't look. He looks tired. May feel as I that our last words went too fast. He is quiet. Turning from the willies of an architect's office, going down a hall passing, visits warned, men's room, restroom door. I'm at stairs top a last time. Energy drained, start edging myself down, then around the double back midpoint landing. This last straight stair run becomes easier. Once onto lobby's floor, feet pick up for moving across. Faster now, out the door and shedding behind Lusak Sohn's concrete fluted portal into reality's stark plunge on how not having a real job plays out. Younger days mental and possible actual run back home for refuge is gone. Ethel and her linoleum floored house is as refuge, once in these blocks, gone. She died, structures were wrecked and cleared away. Damn quake. Colorful past people and past places have vanished. In a word right now, lost. Having a sense about timing, events that just happened, but do sense destiny up here. Got to find it, grab a hold, hang on, and own it. But to find, the only motion going about my best next move is to keep on dancing. That's how it was. You didn't know what was going to happen next. And that was a quite an experience um, from up to there and then from there on. That's a great place to stop. We're out of time.
Ralph's website, artechdivisions.com. There's more about him and his work, including his architectural projects in 1960s, 70s Anchorage. My website is frame-ak.com. This is episode 13 of Alley Audio Vision, recorded December 4th, 2021. May all your alliances be productive and your buildings stand plumb and true forever, dear friends. See you next time.